Hi, this is host Stephen Brittingham. Be sure to listen to my exclusive interview with Steve Keneally. As part of the Dallas 40th anniversary celebration here on Hollywood and Beyond. There's a part of me that's never going to leave here. Steve Keneally, return to Southport. to Hollywood and Beyond podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Carrie Denzel, actor, producer, creator, and writer of State of Slay. I invite you all to join me on my blog, stateofslay.com. Slay in this case being an acronym for self-love appreciate you. As I talk about my journey from the darkness of depression to living in the light today and finding self-love and forgiveness for myself, it is a sense of community, a place of sharing, of love, and a place where we inspire and encourage one another. So come and join me and all the other Slayers at stateofslay.com. Slay on. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, friends and listeners. You're home for meaningful interviews. This is host Stephen Brittingham. It is an absolutely beautiful day here in my hometown of Cincinnati. This is where I host the show, and I am so grateful for all of the amazing folks who visit me here on Hollywood and Beyond. And thank you, too, for listening. Speaking of beautiful, my extra special guest today is a lady that radiates classic beauty, Cherie J. Wilson. Her talent as an actress is equally as beautiful and radiant as the lady herself. She seems to brighten up any project she is involved with. As April Stevens on Dallas, Cherie gave an outstanding performance, providing viewers with many, many memorable moments. Previously on Dallas... Hello, Jack. April, what are you doing here? Is that my greeting after all we've meant to each other? We never meant anything to each other. I thought you'd make a great wife. You thought I'd be a great meal ticket. Well, we were both wrong. Till now. Here's your copy. You own 10% of Ewing Oil and half that's mine. Pretty simple, no? I just couldn't stand the thought that J.R. would have told you first, and you'd never want to see me again. In a strange way, I understand why he did what he did. But it doesn't make it any easier to take. I booked myself on a flight to Paris tonight. Shall I be on it? 
Paris is a beautiful city. It's very romantic. You should see it with somebody that you really like. That's you. Then why don't you cancel your trip for the time being? And stay here? Stay here. April, I'm glad you're here. I missed your funny little face. <laughs> you talked me into it. Besides, how could Paris be any prettier than this? I don't think it could right now. April's transition from a money and power hungry character to that of a warm, big hearted lady was impressive and very enjoyable to see unfold. Often seen with Patrick Duffy, Larry Hagman, and Ken Kershaw on the series. After April suffered a grisly fate in Paris while on her honeymoon with Bobby Ewing, viewers missed and grieved for the character until the conclusion of CBS's Dallas on May 3rd, 1991. It would not be long, though, until Cherie was once again giving another strong and appealing performance on primetime television, and this time in Walker, Texas Ranger. And she co-starred with one of my favorite action stars of all time, Chuck Norris. Also working with the talented Clarence Gilliard. And how exciting is it that Cherie is once again working with Clarence in the theatrical Driving Miss Davy production on the stage? I am looking forward so much to speaking with Cherie about all of this and so much more. Cherie J. Wilson, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. I'm delighted to be joining you. It's so nice to have you here today, and I'll tell you what, before we discuss your many adventures on Dallas and, of course, Walker, Texas Ranger, plus more of your background, such as where you are from, I thought we would go right ahead, Cherie, and discuss this exciting theatrical production, Driving Miss Daisy. What can you uh, uh, inform the listeners out there about this production? Well, it is a stage production, and we have been taking it all over the country. We've been in New Mexico, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia. Um, we've been up to Michigan. We've been in Wisconsin. We've been. We need to come to Cincinnati. That is for sure. Yes, you but do. I am absolutely <laughs> seeing the country through Daisy's eyes, and oh my goodness, we are having a blast. Clarence Gilliard. Um, has, is part of a theater company from the Neil Simon Festival in Cedar City, Utah. And he actually did the play originally with somebody else, and he thought, this is such, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, and it's the, the material is just so rich and so funny, and it's truly a love story. And when Clarence came and asked me if I would go on tour with him, I thought, are you kidding me? This sounds like a, the dream job. And um, I've had quite a few dream jobs, and this is just another one. <laughs> we have had a blast. Clarence is so funny in it. In rehearsals, I would be, I was watching his performance. I was so captivated by him. I thought, oh, 
wait a minute, you're in this scene. You better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely was just lost in how good he is and how funny he is. And he's, he plays Hope so well. And I just love Daisy. Well, that sounds uh, absolutely uh, wonderful. And he's such a talented uh, man, such a talented actor. Now, I was telling you right before we uh, uh, started the interview today that, you know, I was thinking you might be a little bit too young to play Miss Daisy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have some very fabulous uh, makeup and a great gray wig. And sometimes (laughs) Daisy has a little bit of this uh, Audrey Hepburn voice going. (laughs) So... And it's all in your attitude. <laughs> That's right. And well, how did the idea, though, for the two of you to work on this first develop? Well, it came because um, he did it. Clarence did it with another actress in this summer uh, festival. And then when they went to some of the booking agents, they wanted, you know, marquee value names. And nothing against this other actress. It's just she was more of a local actress in Utah. And um, then the idea, well, if you were paired up with your co-star, Sheree Wilson, it would be a different story. It would be, you know, Trevette and Miss Alex Cahill back again as Hoke and Daisy in Driving Miss Daisy. And that's how the whole thing was inspired by Clarence and uh, Roger Neal called me up and they came over one afternoon and they sat me down and asked me if I'd like to do it. And I thought, what a challenge this would be. And um, just don't ever give me a challenge. I'm too quick to accept them. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded like uh, the kind of challenge that I knew I had to just jump in with both feet. And um, so, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're having a ball. Sounds like it, and I certainly hope I do get a chance to see a, a performance. That would be just so exciting, and um, really hope you guys do come to Cincinnati. I do, too. Yes, we went to Texas. We went to back to Dallas and up into Richard um, the Eisman Performing um, Arts Center, and, oh, it was so fun to be back in Dal- the Dallas community, and all of our crew and our, you know, everybody that we've worked with or I've worked with from the Dallas days to the Walker days to friends. It was just, it was a tremendous uh, five-day run in, in, in Dallas. But, uh, and we're going back to Dallas. Like, I think we're going back to, uh, no, College Station in October. I think they're, they're starting to book, book for the fall, book for 2020. So we'll have to check with Roger and see what, what's coming up and what's coming your way. I see. Well, that sounds good. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that they love you in Dallas or the Texas area. <laughs> you certainly have a connection to the state, don't you? <laughs> we've sold out. We've sold out in Wisconsin. There's a 2,000 seat theater. Oh, that's that wonderful. Beautiful, and in you know Albuquerque, and so we've had some really great performances in Orlando. We just got back from Miami, so yeah, we've, we're flip flighting around the country. <laughs> Well, this is the kind of production that's appealing, like you just described, anywhere, you know, across the country. If you, you love theater and, and good performances, I mean, this would be a show to definitely go see. Yes, it is. It's, um, it is, I don't know, I, I would be very surprised if any 
generation, you know, that loves theater or goes to the theater and, you know, wouldn't be familiar with Driving Miss Daisy. It's just a yes. classic. Um, Alfred Urey really did. Now, I am very curious, Cherie. Uh, yes. So before your first official performance, right? So I mm-hmm. guess we could say opening night. How long were you in rehearsal with Clarence? <laughs> a week. <laughs> Just one week? Oh, my goodness. We had a little bit of a problem. It was nerve-wracking because we, I got to play. It was going out, you know, in January. We were basically trying to fit in rehearsal over the holidays. And I, I flew to Las Vegas, and we had three days there. Then Clarence came out and had a day with me. Then Richard would drive out from Utah to L.A. and we, We'd have a day of rehearsal. This was tour- I mean, we really did this. It, it, I would not recommend this to anybody. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. We got together before a 2,000-seat theater in Albuquerque, and I'm going, I was rearranging the furniture in my hotel room, and we were just rehearsing, going uh, as if it was mm-hmm. the stage, and just doing dress rehearsal, blocking rehearsals, all of that. But it came off without a hitch. It's amazing. You just remember to breathe before you get out there. And uh, Richard Bug always says, right before we step on stage, he says, give them a gift. And he said, that's all you have to do. Just give them a gift. And it just relaxes you, and you take the ownness off yourself and the attention off yourself and you really think about this is the audience that I want to perform to and give them a gift. Now I think that's wonderful. That, that That's wonderful perspective to, to take and I, I wanted to ask you though because you, you obviously know Cherie. So what do you find the biggest differences on performing on stage compared to in front of the camera as far as creating a character and how you present that character as an actress? Well, it's interesting. As you know, if you have a character for a TV series such as Dallas or Walker, Texas Ranger, my two longest-running you know, shows, Dallas, I started out as a little femme fatale. I was a little brat, you know. <laughs> I was JR's <laughs> nemesis. And I, was, I was very conniving, and the way I came to town was not very... It wasn't a very high moral ground. <laughs> she had dollar signs in her eyes. She no had doubt very about it. big dollar signs in her eyes, and she was out for... Um, for riches and fame and uh, by any means. And uh, it was fun. It's fun to play a bad girl and have a character like that. But then, as they decided they really liked my character and they wanted to keep me, I, I evolved as a person, as a character. My character evolved. And I... It, it was a fun transformation over the course of five years. Now, you can transform as a character to being then, um, once you, you know, she became a, an actually more humbled person, a nice person, and landed, you know, the uh, affection of Mr. Sweet Bobby Ewing. Um, that was because they really, you know, wanted to keep me on the show. And I was very, very, very honored to be uh, accepted and to have such a great working rapport with some of the most classically 
brilliant actors and friends. I can call people that I could call my very dear friends: Linda Gray, Larry Hagman, Patrick Duffy, Ken Kirchhoff, you know, Charlene, Steve Canales, and Dahl. I mean, just such nice people. Um, and we, you know, it was a really tremendous life experience. But the difference, so take it back to your original question. In television and in film, you create a character, film, you're over in two hours, and that's it. That's a cre- You've created it. But you can, it's molded a lot with the director, and it's molded with, you know, the DP and the tones and the lighting and the this and the that, and you create this character together. And you can go back and have take two, and you can try it this way, you can try it that way, you can try it multiple ways. Well, in a stage performance such as Driving Miss Daisy, she is a character, and you know her character, and you, she jumps off the page at you, and you have to repeat that character every single time. So once you get into Daisy's bones and into her voice and into her mannerisms and into her snappiness and and her you know it's it's something that you lock in a performance and then it changes every time you step on stage depending on your audience because in stage you're really in a dance with the audience it's when they laugh it's it's like you you deliver a line and if the audience is loving it they laugh loudly so you have to wait until that laughter just subsides a little bit and then you hit them with your next line and so <laughs> it feels like a very interactive dance with the audience and um you don't have that kind of instant gratification and and reward in film and television and so that's why theater is so much more exciting because it is live. There is no take two. If you flub your lines, if you trip, <laughs> you trip. If you walk out, you're not supposed to have your hat on anymore because I have 13 changes of clothing. I oh, my. Perform it. I have 13 changes. Um, that's, that's more than I would have originally anticipated. It is. And... So in the car, I typically have gloves and hats and, you know, fur coats or nice jackets and this and that. And then <laughs> when I'm, you know, in my house, I'm in my house coat and my robe and this and that. And there's Crazy Daisy and there's... And so, yes, I have walked back out on stage after rushing backstage and ripping off my coat and dress and this and that and putting on my, my robe. And I walked out and I still had my hat on. <laughs> oh, wow. I was like, mm, I guess I need a mirror check myself before I step back on stage on every performance now, but that mm. was uh, that's if that's the least of my uh, faux pas, I guess it's not too bad. It's just funny. Now, what about Clarence? Does he have a little less wardrobe changes? He does have less wardrobe <laughs> changes because he's uh, you know he's a chauffeur and he yes. has his kind of uniform and he has his a top coat and he has a few a few uh, a few. Uh, costume changes but <laughs> certainly not to the tune of Daisy's going to you know the JA banquet and um 
honoring Martin Luther King and going to the temple and going into the car and on the way to Piggly Wiggly and being at her house. And so there's there's quite a lot that goes on. It's a 90-minute, no intermission performance. And oh, so wow. I was not aware yeah. of that. Yes. We're no intermission. 90, 90 minutes straight. Now, is there some sort of strategic purpose for that, or was it always intended to be that way? It was always intended to be that way. I and see. The play just clips right along. Wow. And, uh, no, it's, so yes, it's, uh, it's a very full experience. Well, I'm going to see what I can do to get you guys here in the Queen City, because I, I think <laughs> folks here who do love theater very much, I think that they would embrace the production in, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a fantastic manner. So yes. I'll keep my fingers crossed. And I enjoyed your description so much. Um, the energy of the audience and how that, oh, yeah. how that affects you as a performer on stage. And um, I'm sure, though, as an actress, when you know you might have a close-up on a camera, that's an opportunity to show some emotions that way. But there is something about a, a live audience that just really a lot of electricity isn't there. There is. It's it's very electric for for the stage performance, and the beauty of film and television is that you can go so emotionally deep. You can be yes. so quiet with your emotions, but let them spill out, just in the most organic but profound way. And close-ups and camera can they detect everything that you're thinking and feeling and so you can be much more in your body and in 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 a very um delicate place for film and and television which is also quite rewarding um to have your inner emotional life going on and very alive and very vibrant and active and where theater you have to emote and you really have to you know, it's much. Uh, it's a much different projection of emotional and and of your emotional life. So there's there's benefits and there's there's joy and there's. Um, I mean, I love it all. Yes. <laughs> that's just the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing all of this so much. Now, I have a question that I am mm-hmm. very curious about. And that is, well, obviously, with, um, you know, you being reunited with Clarence once again, right? So I'm wondering if a certain gentleman has come to see the performance yet, or a performance, and that is Chuck Norris. No, actually, when we were in Dallas, I think he was in Hawaii. Oh. And then another time that we were close, I think he was in Germany. Chuck (laughs) has not made it yet. Oh, no. But we'll... uh, we're we're gonna let him know well in advance as soon as we have any other performances in Texas and hopefully he'll be around. If, yes, Michael Priest and all of our other crew members, our directors and other actors, and you know, it was just we had like it was like old family week. You know, the, it was pretty much the. <laughs> I don't care if it was from props to script supervisors to stunts, you know, everybody was there. It was really fun. But yes, we have yet to perform for Mr. Norris. <laughs> I bet that <laughs> would be very there. exciting, huh? To know that oh, he was out so in the audience fun. if you were told oh, yeah. in advance. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Hey, Absolutely. that might be the night where things go wrong, right? It just... No, don't say it. Don't say it. 
something unusual yeah. happens, right? Oh, well, well, we've had mics go out, and all of a oh. sudden we're like, "Oh, okay," and battery packs are being ripped, changed in this. That. Oh my goodness! Then you're really emoting for a two thousand seat theater. Mm. But uh, yeah, just life life can happen. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for sharing all all of those uh, interesting uh, uh, information about the about the theatrical production of Driving Miss Daisy. I want to wish you both, all of you in the production, a continued success. And I will certainly do my part to see if I can come see a performance someday. Be a, a big, big treat. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well, Cherie, I'd like to go ahead and ask you now about where you are from and uh, maybe what your childhood in general was like for you. Well, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I grew up as an athlete and an outdoors person, and I had horses growing up. My sister, my dad bought my sister and I both horses. We... um, um, I was born in Rochester, Minnesota, and both my parents came from, they were farmers. They grew up on farms, one in Minnesota, one in Iowa. And so I've always been around lots of animals and lots of beautiful outdoors life. And my sister and I and our two best friends, Patty and Peggy Nelson, they had horses. So our typical day growing up was saddle up the horses. My mom would give us water and lunches and put it in our saddle roll. And we would take off into the mountains and it was get home before dark. And so we just went ripping through the mountains going, oh, the Indians are chasing us. And we would have to get water and this and that. I think I became an actress because I all I did was storytell all day long and make-believe, and it was probably the most rich and beautiful way to grow up, hiking, skiing, fishing, camping. Um, I was, you know, an all-around gymnast. I ran track and field. I was, you know, anything to stay active, and I always loved theater, and I started church plays with my mom in the second grade, and so that probably is where I started my little bug for performing <laughs> way back when wow. I was eight years old. Well, it sounds so, like you probably had a, so much fun being able to play outdoors in that manner and oh, uh, yes. a sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I had, I mean, I just pinched myself and I have had one of the most charmed upbringings and, um, you know, I just, it's just a great it's 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 almost sad i'm maybe more in the midwest still you can have this kind of lifestyle um that you can you know play outside and get home before dark you know instead of it's it's a little different you know in the bigger cities and in los yes. angeles <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Having true to, have uh, I mean, we had no cell phones. We sometimes we got lost. We saw if my dad's truck lights were on, we knew we were in trouble because it was dark, Uh-oh. and we would just whipping, getting galloping back to the barn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but who would let their kids in this day and age just take off into the mountains and say get home by dark without a cell phone? It's just, it's just a not too, not too time. many, not too many, not these too days. many these days. Now, Cherie, did you experience what I did? Growing up in the 80s, right? So way before cell phones and, <laughs> and, and all of that. Uh, my uh, 
grandparents raised me, Cherie. So, but I called her mom, and mom would often yell out my name when it got too dark. So I'd hear Stephen going through the neighborhood, and I would be like, "I'll be home in a minute." Right? (laughs) Did you experience that? Oh yes, absolutely. That was uh, it. Was one big (laughs) holler off the porch? (laughs) Yes. You have a love for horses. Oh yes, I um. I grew up riding, and in fact, um, one of the blessings of going back to Texas um, for Walker, Texas Ranger, is that I lived in Dallas for 10 years, and because they don't, Dallas doesn't have like a massive nature, there's no ocean, there's no mountains, so what do you do for recreational fun in your spare time? I started riding the rodeo circuit for charity events. And I was taught to ride cutting horses, which is a whole different thing to learn how to cut cows. And um, Punk Carter taught me to ride cutting horses. And, oh, my gosh, is that a blast. So then I would do the hugs and howdy. I would do the futurity. I would do the MS rodeo. I would do all these. And I would compete against the Dallas Cowboys and all the other, like Barry Corbin wow. and all these different guys. And uh, I have a big fat gold statue for the MS Rodeo and uh, where I won and I beat all the Texas Rangers. It was like great. <laughs> so impressive. You're actually doing the rodeo circuit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was my that was my spare time fun is uh riding in rodeos for uh raising money for different charity events. You know who this reminds me of? You sharing these stories it is a character from Dallas and 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 that's Dusty Farlow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was uh, sure. big into the rodeo, so you, you, you kind of brought that back. Well, that's very impressive. That's so neat. I, I will share this with you, Cherie. When I first moved to L.A. years and years ago, I basically took I-40 all the way, and I did mm-hmm. go through Texas, and I just remembered how flat it was oh, for the most so flat. <laughs> part, and so much cattle everywhere I went. And, yeah. and I remember seeing the sign that said to Dallas, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to, to head that way and, 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 and just visit the city before I uh, land in L.A., but I, I kept going. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. No, it's... Uh... Dallas is a wonderful city. I mean, it's it's it. You've got Dallas and Fort Worth. They're both just amazing cities. They have everything that you could ask for in the arts and in shopping and restaurants and you know they have a incredible community and it's so philanthropic. People there are truly they have. They say everything is bigger in Texas. Well, I think their hearts are bigger in Texas. They raise so much money. They do. They're they're so they're just nice people, and and yet you know you can get out and you can get out into the fresh air and you can ride horses, you can ride amongst the cattle cattle and the buffalo and the longhorns, and you can <laughs> you, it's it's a, you know it's a really it's a wonderful life. It is. And it's a different atmosphere, isn't it? It's kind of like yes, almost it its own country in a way. It's just got its own <laughs> its own atmosphere. It's, it certainly does. It certainly well, does. Well, you of all people would, would know about that. And so I heard, Cherie, that mm-hmm. um, 
as far as modeling goes, there was a very interesting situation with a photographer, I believe back in the early 80s, if I have this correctly, who mistaken you as the model, and that kind of um, offset a series of events for you. Well, actually, it took place, yes, in the, like, 1979, 1980. I was finishing up my degree in business and fashion merchandising, setting up a a fashion show at the Denver Merchandise Mart, and I was, you know, that was the days of, like, tall wedgies and high-waisted pants, and so I looked like, you know, as tall as, I I looked really (laughs) tall, and I was putting myself through college, and I had no money, so I went to the grocery Mm. store with a calculator, knowing exactly how many oranges I could buy, how many this, sure, sure. I was pretty thin, and uh, they were, this photographer, Bernard Grant, was taking pictures, he goes, they were like, get in your next change of clothes, I'm like, I'm running this show, I'm not modeling in it, and he turned the pictures over to Vicki Light, who um, had the Light Company at the time, and she was a former model, and had a modeling agency, and was moving out to L.A. in uh, the next year or two to start a theatrical agency out in Los Angeles, and so... He turned these pictures over to Vicky Light, and he took my number and this and that, called and said, do you want to do some tests, test shots? And I said, what is, te- you know, testing? He said, no, we just, you, I want to put you in some, like, tennis clothes, and I have another model that's coming, and we're just going to see how you move as a model and this and that. So he took all these pictures of me in tennis clothes and this and that, and they came out as ads in jc penny's in the mat in the newspaper in the denver post that weekend i was like oh, wow he said i didn't <laughs> want to tell you you'd been too nervous and then he gave me my first modeling paycheck i was like yeah it's better than the three dollars and 29 cents an hour whatever i'm making <laughs> <laughs> you can get some more things at the grocery store yeah and then so vicky became my agent in denver and i said the truth be known i really don't want to model but i'd love to act and i have to finish my degree i promised my parents but i said i would love to use fashion merchandising or modeling to get me to new york so i can study theater and so she introduced me to wilhelmina and eileen ford had called to find out they were trying to get J.C. Penney's was calling Wilhelmina and Ford saying, we want to book this girl. And they go, we have no idea who this girl is. And so they tracked me down in Denver. And um, Wilhelmina flew out. We had lunch at the Brown Palace. And she recruited me to come to New York and sign with the Wilhelmina models at the time. And I was her last recruitment before, sadly, she got pneumonia that Christmas. And she went into the hospital, and they opened up her lungs, and she was full of cancer, and she died. So I never got to see her again after our beautiful lunch. But um, I went to New York, and Vicki said, you go to New York, you study, and I'll see you in five years. And we did it in four. And Vicki Light was my one and only agent my entire career up until um, people that work for Joni Burstein put me into Walker, Texas Ranger. Vicki has MS, and she had to close her agency, but some of the people that worked at her agency I stayed on with. And um, so, yes, I had a, only one one representative <laughs> my whole entire career up until Walker. That ended. is something else. Yeah. 
so that is I'm something fiercely else. loyal and fiercely uh, and just blessed beyond measure. Wow, no doubt about it. You're you're <laughs> truly a remarkable lady. I, I I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, well, your early years as an actress, Cherie, I came across something very interesting. It fascinated me, fascinated me, and that is that you had a connection with Leonard Katzman. Before the Dallas days, and I was going to uh, ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing that with the listeners now. Well, uh, there was a, a pilot for a new series called Our Family Honor. It was very progressive. It was kind of like the Sopranos before the Sopranos. I think we were a little before our time. It was the Irish Catholic cops versus the Italian mafia. I and see. we had the most incredible cast, and you'll remember when Patrick Duffy left Dallas and Leonard Katzman left Dallas, he wanted to do other things. Um, there was a year that Leonard left the show. Well, Leonard Katzman with Chuck and Larry Gordon, they were the executive producers for our family honor, and they cast me as Rita Danzig as one of the... Um, Michael Madsen's wife on the mafia side of the family. It was Eli Wallach and Kenneth McMillan, the two patriarchs. It was just Michael Madsen, Ray Liotta, myself, Daphne Ashbrook, Tom Mason. We had such an incredible cast. And we went off to New York City and we shot a year, a, the, our family honor for that year. And Leonard, um, the show didn't continue, uh, unfortunately, but um, Leonard then got wooed back to Dallas because Larry said the year that he was gone, the ratings pummeled and they were missing Patrick, they were missing Leonard. Leonard was, you know, he was, he, he basically would write the Bible for the, the show, um, the first 13 episodes, you know, before we even started filming. And you knew the direction where where this was going to go and the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs. And, and so Larry told CBS that he would put up a million dollars of his own money if CBS would put up a million dollars to get Leonard Katzman back. I mean, I don't know if any of those numbers really, if that ever happened, but that was that's the story. Wow. And anyway, Leonard decided to come back and they that told Patrick that he had to come back as well. And that was the year that Patrick showed up in the shower and Leonard Katzman calls Vicki Light, invited me over to Lorimar. I went to his office. I hadn't seen him since New York. He said, you know, we've got a lot of cleanup on the show from what they did while I was gone. And JR needs a nemesis. And this is where I'm going to write a part for you that <laughs> is going to be, I was like, dumbfounded I was in his <laughs> office and he I said, bet. everybody's fa- favorite nations here and you'll have the same size dressing room as Larry and Linda and Patrick and da 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 da, da. and I walked out of there and I called my agent and she, she goes what did Leonard want I said I think I'm dreaming or something myself I just got offered a job <laughs> so <laughs> oh, I was came on the same year that Patrick showed up in the shower <laughs> yes, his his return to Dallas. His return to Dallas was my return. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, very exciting times. Very, very exciting And you know times. what? Um, I have to tell you, Sharia, uh, uh, listening to you describe uh, how much Larry wanted 
Patrick back personally. Obviously, you know, no doubt he didn't have quite as much fun, especially what I have heard from people that worked during that dream season that he, that, you know what? It wasn't just JR mourning Bobby. It was Larry mourning Patrick. He really, really missed that connection. Oh, absolutely. They're like brothers. They were really brothers. They're so funny together. They are so quick-witted. My mantra every day driving to work was, don't laugh your makeup off today. You have to stay calm. You have to not let them get to you. You cannot laugh till you cry. You cannot laugh till you cry. I mean, that's a pretty good mantra to have to go to work every day trying to maintain control of your laughter so that you don't cry your makeup off. <laughs> like they were so funny together. I have heard about their um, shenanigans and just oh. how much fun they had together. The practical jokes. Um, All the time. I mean, it just sounds like so much fun. I mean, for you to be a part of that, uh, what a joy! Oh, it was. It, it was. Nothing but joy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, Deborah Trinelli, who was a guest here on Hollywood and Beyond, she uh, shared that, you know, just so many times that that, that, that they would be uh, uh, doing some sort of practical joke or doing something that would uh, <laughs> would cause her to have difficulty not laughing right before a scene. Or oh, uh, she, she shared a, a story you about an elevator where uh, it was supposed elevator? to go down so far, but when the door would open, they were on their knees pretending <laughs> like they got stuck. And she just <laughs> she just said it, it just them together was just um, uh, something else. <laughs> You couldn't go to a, you know, one of the miss, you know, dinner at South Fork, and oh my gosh, here's Patrick and Larry would get their close-ups first, and then afterwards they would load up their their spoons with peas, and they're flinging them across the table. <laughs> Larry'd be talking, and mashed potatoes would be gushing out of his mouth and dripping down his chin, and <laughs> Barbara Buckley would say, "Larry, Larry, Patrick, stop it, stop it." It was like a real family. <laughs> just, Isn't that just something else? Laughing. They're just, oh, God. It's so, just so much fun. I'm sure so it warms your heart. You can't just open a closet without ha- they had booby-trapped like one of the prop <laughs> guys in there to jump out of you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> one of them would be hiding and she would just scream. I mean, they just, they were they were complete clowns and always up to practical jokes and just having fun. You know, well, you, you know Sharia, I'm about to ask you about your earlier days and episodes on Dallas, but since mm-hmm. we're discussing these two, I, I would like to tell you that in my opinion, I think the brother relationship between J.R. and Bobby uh-huh. is one of the most fascinating brother relationships in television history. Because oh. when you think of the ups and downs, mm-hmm. the moments of love, but then the moments of resentment and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and where they were angry and upset with each other, it is absolutely fascinating. Oh, it was. It was a very intricate, you know, complicated web of of true family where you love each other you're furious at each other you're the highs the lows it's it 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 was as complex as as life could imagine it to be and uh and very rich and uh they just both played it so well and played so well off of each other it was just tremendous
And I think that the love that the two characters fell for each other, even at the moments when it seemed that they were at odds in extreme ways, but at the end of the day, they would be there for each other if, if they needed to be. And oh, I'll tell course. you what, Cherie, I don't know if you've ever seen this scene, because it was, it was during the very early years of Dallas, but there was a scene where two gentlemen were uh, saying some not-so-flattering uh, things about Bobby to Jr. And Jr. slapped one of the men and said, don't you ever talk about my brother like that again. And I've never forgotten that moment. Wow. That's some powerful stuff. <laughs> it like, sure is, isn't family it? Family <laughs> is family. Don't mess with my family. <laughs> well, I and be mad at him, but you can't be mad at him. <laughs> that's right. I think that was the viewpoint that they could be mad at each other, but uh, right. be careful. Don't, you, yeah, don't you dare cross that line. Well, Cherie, you know, again, growing up in the 80s and, and loving this show, and um, I used to tell my friends, please, I cannot play, or, or please do not call me between 8.45 and about 10.05, because Dallas would be on. And, the and they thought that, that between nine and ten, yes, <laughs> that's right. Because it, you know, it, and to remind folks, uh, you know, if you missed an episode, I mean, you missed an episode. It wasn't on demand like it is today. You had to wait till the oh, summer for a rerun. I know. There was no binge watching. There was no, uh, you can just call it up whenever you want. No DVDs out so you could just watch it a million times over and over again. It was truly, you set your calendars and your clocks for you know, watching this show. And if you missed it, you were out of luck. And heaven forbid on the cliffhanger night that there would ever be anything go wrong because you you'd never wanted to miss a Dallas cliffhanger. That's for sure. That and thankfully, true. VCRs came along because just in case you had a little backup there. So that was a, <laughs> that was a wonderful invention, I must say, back at that time, if nothing uh -huh. else, than to record episodes of, of Dallas. But Cherie, when I first saw you on the screen, let me tell you, I just thought uh, my mouth almost hit the floor. I just thought you were so striking and so beautiful. I, I, but you know what? The thing, though, that even at that age, the thing that impressed me about a beautiful lady, so to speak, was much more than appearance. And, and it was your talent. Talent. You were so good right away. Now, when your character arrives, as we've mentioned a few times before, you know, she's got dollar signs in her eyes. Um, eventually, she gets a little very power hungry. But your transformation as, as time goes along was 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 very interesting to see you did that so well and it was very realistic but i wanted to ask you you know those early days when the april was was like that so to speak you had a lot of scenes with uh, some of the top cast members but i wanted to ask you about um a special relationship especially over time with ken kershaw the two characters i thought that was such a nice thing to see was this friendship it's like a genuine friendship and fondness. Mm -hmm. And uh, sadly, Ken has recently passed away. And, um, I know. He's so loved. I just wanted to ask you so your cherished. memories of working with Ken. But I will add this, Cherie, if you don't mind. If you were to ask me to describe Ken's performance on Dallas in only one word, I would choose the word brilliant. And oh, I would, thought I would go ahead and just ask you about some of your memories of working with Ken. Well, Ken was brilliant. He was so talented, and he played Cliff Barnes just, just to the T. And he, 
he was a brilliant man. He was a true Renaissance man. Um, he had such a wealth of knowledge of art and history. And, you know, I'd learned so much from him. He was so incredibly well-read. And, you know, we would have lunch. And he, I learned so much from Kenny. And that's part of, I think, what trans, translated is that we really did have a great friendship. I mean, we just really That's enjoyed nice. each other's company. I mean, I just thought he was, I thought he was brilliantly talented. Um, it was so funny. I brought <laughs> headphones to the set because I knew that I was going to be his date in this red dress with these Chanel number no. five earrings. And so I, I put lady in red the song is dancing with me. I put oh, that. I cued it up. Yes. And so I, I I sent oh. out these headphones with the, the, the lady in red song, <laughs> and I put them on, and then oh. came waltzing out. <laughs> he was just <laughs> so we had fun, just you know, oh. doing playful, you know. It's just sweet, sweet things, you know. Yes. He would share music with me. He would share great poetry or books or this art artist, you know, this artist, you know. And I would share music, and we would, you know, we just had a great friendship. It was, it was, he was, he was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man to work with. I mean, oh, thank you for sharing that, Cherie. That just mm -hmm. warms my heart, and um, you know, I'll never ever forget his performance on Dallas and. And you, I just mentioned earlier, as you know, about the fascinating relationship between Jr. and and Bobby. But uh, Cherie, I have to tell you, when it comes to an epic feud and rivalry, I often tell people who don't know much about Dallas that that is a show that has one of the most intense. Oh. fascinating feuds in television history, and that is Jr. versus Cliff. Cliff Barnes. You thought the Hatfields and McCoys, McCoys had something <laughs> going on. Forget about it. It was <laughs> Cliff Barnes and J.R. Ewing. Oh, my oh, goodness. It was just so rich. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yes. And, and Cherie, it w I mean, I'm sure you witnessed this. You know those moments when the character of Cliff would be consumed with his, his oh, yeah. hatred towards J.R.? It was oh. like its own universe. It was. It was. That was all. It was completely all-consuming. It was all that mattered in the world. It was all that... It, it, it just... It, it is consuming. It really is. <laughs> and, Cherie, you know what? Um, I'll share this with you. Isn't it interesting to think that when the show started, Cliff Barnes was, a, a, you know, a, a lawyer, and he was trying to go after J.R. and the Ewings in the legal way, and then right. the political way, and when everything failed, and you know that old saying, if you can't beat them, join them? Well, right. Cliff becomes an oil man, and wasn't it interesting to see how that character changed? He became many of the things that he despised early on, and I thought that was brilliant in and of itself. It's true. Be careful. Um, you know, what you become obsessed with, you can just become, you can, you know, Step into those dark shadows yourself, and uh, what consumes you, you can become. 
And Cherie, uh, some of your earliest scenes was with a gentleman that is, has been gone for a long time now, and that is Dak Rambo. Um, when Moretta Van Camp was a guest here, she, she said that he was a beautiful person. And I just wanted to ask you, what are your memories of working with Dak? Dak was, he was absolutely, it was so terrible to have to be so mean to such a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) That's when you know it's truly acting because he was, he was just as, gentle and sweet and lovely and and just a delight to work with. I absolutely adored him. And um, we just, we had a lot of fun and, um, you know, he left us way, way too early. He was a huge talent, a beautiful man, um, beautiful inside and out. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Well, if we uh, move to the man himself, uh, the, maybe the heart and soul of Dallas in many ways, and that is Larry Hagman. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, Cherie, that impresses me from an acting standpoint, right, is that J.R. Ewing, to me, is a multidimensional character. Uh, he has many sides, a deep love for his son and his mother, uh, a certain sense of pride of his family's name and, and, and legacy, and this need, maybe obsessive need, to be as great as Jock Ewing, his father, in his mind, that he could be. In many ways, the driving force of J.R. Ewing was to be as great or even greater than Jock Ewing was. But to see the sides of the character, and, and I tell you, one of the, the many people talk about how evil J.R. could be at times, and he could be. I mean, oh my goodness. But you know what? The moments that I just really think of so much was those emotional and tender moments that happened unexpectedly and you could see it in his eyes and i wanted to ask you just your thoughts on working with larry because your character was involved with him on the uh, on the onset for a while um um, larry (laughs) jr was the man you loved to hate because even though you were getting stabbed in the back on occasion or you were getting, you know, the wrath of J.R. Ewing, he still managed to have a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> and so you just couldn't not, you know, remember. He, he truly was Peter Pan's son. Mary Martin said, <laughs> Larry, there is no more mischievous, more playful, more delighted, impish character in life and on on camera. (laughs) Um, He was bigger than life. He was the Pied Piper. He, every, you know, I loved him back in the I Dream of Jeannie days. Oh, yes. um, Very funny. um, Larry um, was talking so much back in those days, he was losing his voice. Mm. So he went to the doctor and they told him, just when you're on the weekends, don't talk on Sundays. Just don't talk. Mm. Rest your voice so that you're okay for work on Mondays. So he liked not talking so much on Sundays. He kept it after I Dream a Genie. So this is how it would go if um, I would get a phone call. I would say hello, and he'd go, 
I go, oh, hi, Larry. <laughs> he goes, I said, and, it, and he goes, I, I, I said, um, oh. he had to do this fast whistle. <laughs> said, Am I coming out to Malibu? <laughs> oh and it was like, yes. And I said, yes, we're coming out. <laughs> and he, you knew exactly what he was saying oh. at all times. He had put, he would put thirty colorful flags and bury them, pound these flags into the sand. <laughs> then he would get out his little flute, and he would invite everybody in Malibu would come by, and he'd mm. pick up a flag, and he would play the flute, and we'd all march up and down the Malibu beach with our flags in this. That. He was such a character. <laughs> so yes. Oh, well, that that is a uh, uh, such a great story about the phone he call. And so much. I had heard that uh, with his family or anybody that came to visit him, let's say on a Sunday, he would mm-hmm. just write down a response. He would not talk, like you said, he would not do it on no. a Sunday. No, um, he, he did not speak on Sundays, and if he couldn't communicate it through whistling, he would write it. <laughs> well, Cherie, I, I, I want to share with you that one of the things that fascinated me about Larry, right, as a young guy in the 80s, when I was first becoming interested in acting, I credit Larry so much to why I wanted to get involved with acting, and that was this. Well, first of all, it looked like he was just having way too much fun, right? And And, and, and second of all, the character was such a big dreamer. So, yes, he's got these schemes, but... At the end of the day, it was like this character had, had all this zest for life, all this energy in his scenes. I mean, when he was uh, on, a, on a mission or trying to achieve a goal, he was just like a, a kid in a candy store. The character was just having so much fun. And um, I always appealed to that side, a big dreamer. But boy, I'm sure, though, you witnessed uh, some of those icier cold moments as well. And I'm just wondering, what is it like in a scene with Larry when Jr. is not happy with you and he starts to have that uh, infamous look of his in his eyes? (laughs) (laughs) It's like uh, a lava heat lamp has just been turned up. (laughs) Okay, got it. <laughs> and, and it's great to, when you get to hold your own in the face of that wall of like, whoa, here it comes, here it comes, get ready, you're about to get blasted. <laughs> it's so much fun because, I mean, I traveled the world with Larry, um, with Larry and Patrick. We went, you know, to. Paris and Vienna and yes. Salzburg and Moscow. But then personally, Larry and I were very, very close personal friends. And I, we went, we sailed the Greek Isles together on an intimate sailboat. We hit 10 different islands. He did friends on um, the boat through the Greek Isles. And then as we got off and we went from Athens to Rhodes, Mykonos, Delos, Santorini, all these beautiful islands, just, oh, it was just a dream, and then his family got on the boat when we got off, and so (laughs) we had a lot of life together, and he was like a second father to me, and Mm -hmm. um, so I actually got to see his one-man show, and he was the guest of honor for a white bridal fundraiser that I had. He was my guest of honor in his last public appearance because the next day he went in and um, he had a bone marrow test 
and he got an infection from that test, and he was gone the following week. So I spent the last um, week with him before his passing. I know Larry and uh, Linda and Patrick were with him. It's his whole family. He had invited them for Thanksgiving, everybody there. So he was surrounded by love and his closest friends and companions and compadres. But I was blessed enough to spend the week with him before riding around in his Airstream and um doing gong bongs and watching the sunset and <laughs> just laughing. And uh, he is forever a twinkle in the sky and uh, always in, in my heart. Wow. What a blessing that you got to spend some time with him that mm-hmm. that final week. And Cherie, I can tell you that um, the night that I got the news that Larry had passed away, it was very late in the evening. Um, I, I'm thinking even maybe around 1130-ish or uh, like very, just very late. And my son had was over and, and just put him to bed. And, and I saw it. And the, the TV was on mute and I was just about to turn it off. And then there was the news ticker on the bottom that CNN has. And it says Larry Hagman has passed away. And I remember going, no, that's just not true. I, I just don't believe it. There's Larry Hagman gone. There's no yeah. way Larry Hagman could be gone. That would mean that J.R. Ewing's gone, you know? Uh, and, and then when I sat down and it just kept coming up, I, I'll tell you, Cherie, I, I shed many uh, quiet uh, tears because mm-hmm. um, I, I, I knew that I was always going to um, uh, uh, miss him and, and, and just uh, all of the memories that he provided me. It just uh, was something I would always cherish. Yeah. He impacted a lot of people's lives, and um, I just, he, he was one of the happiest guys I've ever known, and he always, his motto, he had it etched in his mirror in his bathroom, don't worry, be happy, feel good, and that's how he lived his life. Yes. Well, Cherie, the European, um, you know, that storyline on Dallas, you, you mentioned about traveling and everything. Those were some very exciting episodes, beautifully yes, shot. Were. I mean, really beautiful and very romantic, too. And then lots of intrigue. So what was it like to be a part of that filming experience? Oh, it was just pure magic. I mean, it's pure magic. I mean, there's nothing else. Like, it's almost like... It was a fairy tale, and I was living it. <laughs> so it, it was a, a very real fairy tale, and uh, it yes. just, it just, it's the breathtaking beauty of Vienna and Salzburg and Moscow, and we were there in the first free election, and the history, and I, I mean, it, we, we'd be on for another three hours if I you know, keep telling stories. But that, we're going to have to wrap. I know we've been talking for over an hour already. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you so much. Well, you'll have to come That's back and, do, uh, uh, and share more Dallas memories. Oh, yes, I'd love to. I'd well, love before to I get know. to Patrick, obviously you worked with him so much. Um, you know, I did want to ask you about the storyline involving Tommy McKay with J. Eddie Peck. I remember the scene where he um, violently assaulted April, and I remember yeah. that just how uncomfortable it felt because I didn't know it was going to go 
in that direction so intensely. It just kind of went on and on. And I'm just wondering, when you think back to that moment, that must have been quite an experience for you. Yes, you know, that's the beauty of being an actor, is that you get to experience situations, careers, emotions, um, things that you don't ever experience in your life. Um, Thankfully, I've never had to experience anything like that in my personal life. (laughs) I've never had been assaulted or uh, attacked or anything like that. So it really is a fascinating um, look inside of yourself to draw on those emotions and making those what-if-maybe solutions real for you and how it emotionally impacts you. And that's one of the beauties of getting to explore, as an actor, your shadow side, your most glorious sides of yourself, the the scariest places, places you've never gone before. And... um, and so, yes, it was uh, it was a rich experience for me as a person, as an as an actress, and 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 just to be able to to go to those different places. Um, Walker, Texas Ranger certainly took me to a lot of those places because I've been kidnapped <laughs> and beat up and <laughs> having to throw some punches myself and mm-hmm. get into the fights and stuff. So it's really it's it's just a great time. Really and Jay Eddy's such a nice person because uh, he's uh, been very supportive of my show. I actually hear from Jay Ed- from Jay Eddy from time to time, and oh, he just has the most great. wonderful, encouraging things to say to me. And he's like, "Steve, hey, let's talk about gardening sometime, and or hey, let's just talk about life in general." It's just it's a great guy. Oh, he please give him my best when you talk to him next time because he is a great guy. I will. I'm going to say, Jay Eddie, guess who I just talked to? Nothing like his character. Well, and you know, there would be hell to pay when Bobby found out about that. That was, that was, I mean, out of all the fist fights on Dallas, that was a quite an intense one. I mean, Bobby really, really let uh, Tommy McKay had it, and that was quite an intense scene right there. But do you remember the scene in the hospital, Cherie, where Patrick first learns about what happened? And, you know, it was a tender moment between the two of you. I, I really felt like that was the moment where, wow, the connection was really there. It was just really strong at that moment. It was just something beautiful. You did such a, a great job. And, um, but Patrick Duffy, one of my favorite primetime uh, performances was Bobby Ewing. I really enjoyed the character. So what was it like working so closely with Patrick Duffy? He is an absolute clown from start to finish. He, he, it's so hard to keep him serious. It is so funny. He is... <laughs> <laughs> We just had too much fun. I mean, you know, he—he's also. I mean, he's—he's very—he's um, got such an art collection and so worldly, and he's such an appreciation for horses and and um, and the arts. And when we went to see the Lipizzaners, and just you know, it was riding across the Alps together and having my. Julie Andrews moment of you know the sound of music <laughs> jumping off a horse and doing my twirl. It was like <laughs> it was so much fun. 
fun to be with such great people experiencing such powerful moments and and getting and getting to act and getting to have you know we we had you know obviously we all really liked each other and we all had such tremendous friendships in fact i just went vince and i um and michael priest well linda gray and we all just went to patrick duffy's son opened up um it's the fourth generation of bars, the Duffy bars. This is parents. Oh, Patrick nice. Duffy's parents had a bar in Montana, and they have the exact window, the mirror, and the cash register from his grandparents' bar oh, wow. and restaurant. It's right across from Paramount Studios. And so we nice. just went and hung out with Patrick and Linda, and Vince and I, we just went to check out his new digs, and uh, Patrick, and uh, they have five little mini theaters attached to this bar. So it's like a community theater actors gang hang hang out it's very fun very cool well that sounds uh that sounds really neat mm-hmm. very very interesting mm-hmm. and um i was thinking sheree you you are a person i would love to ask this about because um especially um uh, right before you departed dallas he was a big part of this storyline and his character was actually done in really caught me off guard and that would be the gentleman that portrayed jordan lee don star the thing about him is if, if if his character was happy with you boy you were the greatest thing since sliced pie but if he was upset with you, boy, he was he was uh, not very happy with you. But uh, what was it like to work with Don? <laughs> That's a pretty good description, isn't it, Sherry? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to how, how to even uh, top that. There's nothing more I can say. You've, you've said it all. It's so true. I mean, it was just, you know, it's just a classic, goes down in history as one of the greatest shows with the richest characters and the most, you know, surprising storylines and cliffhangers and that, you know, has ever really happened. I mean, it was 13 years of tremendous television and entertainment with tremendous actors and, you know, everybody from behind the seat. The writers, the directors, the the people that were the oil and the wheels and the, you know, that made the show happen, to uh, the talent that uh, that it, it attracted and and created um, major major stars. And your time with Jack Scalia, he spoke so highly of you when he was oh, a guest I on here, and he said that he liked how you were in the moment as an actress. Mm-hmm. That, that, that he, he really he found that appealing. And he just had wonderful, wonderful things to say about you. Well, I have the exact same feelings about him. It was, um, it, you know, again, I just pinch myself sometimes for how lucky I've been. <laughs> and um, the, the tremendous talent. And, um, you know, Jack's one of those persons that has such a pure heart. And he's not only talented and great looking and you know he just he's just authentic and real and wonderful and a true gentleman i just loved working with him as is as i'm i'm thrilled that he felt the same way but i can't say enough of you know how much i adored working with him as well 
A classy man, and you guys had very good scenes together. Well, before I ask you about your departure and that big storyline in Paris, I thought I would ask you about the lady that portrayed your sister on the show, Kimberly Foster. I've never really heard you um, speak of her or what your time was like working with her, so I thought I would ask you now. Yeah, she... uh you know, I think she moved back to New York right after Dallas, so it, it's not like we, you know, we worked together for a short time, and we never, you know, we didn't get the time to forge a great friendship like, you know, traveling the world with Patrick and Larry. You know, you're living and yes. breathing and, and on trains and planes and automobiles and on the set, and you know, you're pretty much living together 24-7. Um Kimberly was she was great. She was a great little sassy sister, and <laughs> it was just yes. fun to play opposite her. I uh. thought she was really talented and and really delightful. Um, but I don't know. I don't, don't know really what happened to her after the show. I think she moved to New York, and I think she got married. And I don't know I if see. she was continuing her acting career. Well, thanks for sharing your Dallas memories. And as far as the decision to leave Dallas, was that your decision? Did you decide it was that totally my decision? It was yours. I regret it. That well, I was pregnant with my first child, and I knew I never wanted, I would never be a first-time mom ever again. I see. So when I married Bobby Ewing, I was seven months pregnant. Oh, wow. Almost, yes. I had the biggest I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> I had the biggest bouquet of flowers hollowed out, and I walked down with a short skirt on and a low-cut dress, and we have very campy, I have these Polaroids somewhere, um, where I would take the bouquet away, and it looked like a, the shotgun wedding, and it was a big <laughs> belly. But you couldn't tell I was pregnant. No, because I kept, no. I, my pregnancy, I kept it very well concealed. And... Um, I had the baby, and he was five. He was actually on hiatus. I had my son, and then oh. he. Uh, we were back to work when he was five weeks old. We flew to Paris, and so by the time we shot five weeks, he was a ten-week-old baby who had spent half his life in America and half his life in France. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, I respect your decision. I told Leonard Katzman, I said, kill me off in grand fashion. I don't want to just disappear like milk toast. I said, I want to go out with a bang. Well, Leonard took my words to heart and machine gunned me down on our honeymoon in Paris. Yes. And note to self, never ask to be killed off because you never know if the show is going to return. So 20 years later, 25 years later, the show comes back and I can't go back because I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it it causes a problem, doesn't it? It yes, does it cause does. a problem. And, uh-huh. and it, that was a dramatic scene with April being I gunned know. down and, and the kidnapping. You just felt like, gosh, right. he's going to rescue her. But w- working with Susan Lucci during that time, boy, her character was all fired up. Yeah, she was, she was, she was uh, as bad to the bone as she could be. She was great. She was great. She played the part so well. And, um, I mean, at the, the that time of my life in filming was almost a blur, except for the, you know, the big scene up on the rooftop. Yes, that. but I was nursing. I was taking time off from the set. I was running. I was a new mom. I was just like, it's almost a blur, 
working with Susan Lucci because I, I barely remember it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I see. <laughs> Only because I had mommy brain. <laughs> right. That's brain. well. I respect your decision. I think that's a that's a wonderful thing. And and thank you for sharing all of your Dallas memories. And I thought we'd go yeah. ahead and shift gears to Walker, Texas Ranger Chuck Norris, one of my favorite action stars. Uh, uh, I just enjoyed him so much in the eighties. And one of the things I love about him the most, Cherie, is that um, as tough as he is, he seems to have a big heart with his characters. He is the real deal in every sense of the word. Chuck Norris is the nine-time world karate champion, uh, fought at Madison Square Garden. If he says, don't cross this line because you'll get kicked in the head, you know, overzealous stuntmen that get a little hyped up and they move too close to him, get kicked in the head. Um, Mm. It's happened once (laughs) or twice. (laughs) But, um, no, he is a true patriot. He is a family man. Um, There were nine grandchildren born on the set of Walker, Texas Ranger. Whoa, wow. uh, Yes, that came into existence. He (laughs) he is such a proud American. He is, he walks the walk and he talks the talk and he is a good Christian man and he's just the real deal. He's just as good as they get. He sure is. Thanks for sharing that about him. And and uh, just to wrap up uh, your time on Walker, Texas Ranger, your character experienced a lot of adventures, to say the oh. least. <laughs> I was chased by a bear one week, and then I was flying and landing a 747 the next week. <laughs> I was rappelling down a ravine, then I was in court, then I was dangling off a bridge, or I was, you know, being abducted by these redneck mountain guys and drug off into the mountains. We were whitewater rafting. Then we'd be on the case of some, you know, person. Walker was the most adventurous, as closest to my childhood dream as anything could be because we were outside. We were on location five days out of the seven working days. We did stage work two days out of the seven working days that it took to shoot an episode. There were two units going at all times, second unit doing crash scenes and chase scenes in cars. And um, when DFW decided to expand the airport, they bought this entire subdivision and all the people in these houses in this beautiful little subdivision, you know, um, they all moved out of their houses, so we created a bomber episode. And so, of course, we're blowing up this entire subdivision by a crazed bomber, you know, maniac. Oh, my. And they, they, so <laughs> we would write the most crazy, the craziest shows. And it was funny because people said that the pilots were flying into DFW and all of a sudden all these houses were going up. They go, Attention, attention. This is not a terrorist attack that we're flying into. It's just another episode of Walker, <laughs> Texas Ranger. <laughs> oh, that's was, just fantastic. Well, Cherie, thank you for fun. such a uh, oh. uh, such a wonderful interview experience. And uh, oh, I, I've enjoyed every moment. Oh, well, me too. Thanks for letting me run down memory lane with you. It's I've had such a charmed and rich and wonderful 
career, and I'm grateful every single day for every moment of it. And, uh, there's more to come because now I'm producing, and I have uh, a whole slate of films that I will be uh, manning, and I'll be at the helm. Some I'll be acting in, some I'll just be producing. And so I'll be back to your show when I have more to share on that note. Well, anytime. I look forward to that already. And okay. um, if I get the chance to see you on stage, I'll be sure to, to let Roger know to say, hey, let, let Cherie know that I'm going to be in the audience. Okay. Thank <laughs> you so much. This has been such a delight. To you, Bobby James Ewing, take April Stevens to be your lawfully wedded wife. I do. Do you, April Stevens, take Bobby James Ewing to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. Then by the power vested in me by the county of Braddock and the state of Texas, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. Stephen Brittingham, your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. <laughs>